Welcome to the seventh episode, Clip Show Spectacular of the Annotated 80s. So, Paul, we've made it to episode seven. I mean, yeah, that's that's great, I suppose. What's wrong? your hockey and your baseball team lose again it was a bad night actually uh the sixers won so no i'm not really upset about that it's just i've spent so much time on the seventh episode spectacular and uh-huh. nothing is coming together i can't get the budget i want uh, there's no time uh-huh. and my guest stars aren't returning my calls uh, but paul i keep telling you Bob Hope and Dean Martin died years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You know, it might be good. What's that? Instead of getting guest stars, remember that time you were telling me about clip shows? Clip shows? Yes. The episodes of sitcoms and other television series that were pretty popular in the 80s. I remember Mm -hmm. our conversation like it was just yesterday. Hey, Paul, what's up? Oh, hey. I was just watching the Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode, The Gang Does a Clip Show. It's pretty hilarious. Ah, uh, clip shows. God, remember Family Ties? I used to love uh, Family Ties. They had like mm-hmm. two or three clip shows a season, though. It was totally lame. I guess it's because they blew their budget on all the special effects. Well, you know, Michael J. Fox's ties were really fucking expensive. That's a really good point. Yeah. 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 All that Brooks Brothers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But but it wasn't always because of budgets. Clip shows have been around for quite a long time. Like movies studios like Republic Pictures mm-hmm. in the 1930s when they would have those serial narratives mm-hmm. um, would often cobble together clips from previous episodes of the, the Buck Rogers narrative to kind of mm. let the audience fill in the gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Columbia, which did the Three Studios shorts after Shemp Howard died, would piece together all these different Three Stooges episodes just to cover up the fact that he had died. So kind of replace mm. them with a actor film from the back. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> in the 70s and 80s, <laughs> clip shows, especially with sitcoms, and we watched so many clip shows growing up, right? Oh, uh, tons, tons. Like the Golden Girls have 900 clip shows, I believe, or something insane like that. Well, the reason, one of the reasons why they did that mm-hmm. was because in the 70s and 80s, TV series used to have larger orders for an entire season. So nowadays, I think it's 24 to 25. Mm-hmm. In the 70s and 80s, it could be, you know, almost 30, right? Mm-hmm. So you needed something to kind of give the writers a break. Uh, you'd also need something to, well, kind of keep the budgets a little smaller, as mm-hmm. the case I, As I said, with the mm-hmm. ties and mm-hmm. the special yep. effects. But there's also a way, because the way people watch TV in the 70s and 80s, you wouldn't necessarily see the same episode until maybe once in rerun during the summer and then Mm -hmm. maybe a couple years later when the show went into syndication so it was partly a way to like have like the big moments of a tv of a tv series season Mm -hmm. and get to show those again to an audience and they were kind of popular with audiences for that reason 
but also, like I said, it was a big way for, you know, overtaxed writers to kind of do a cheap and easy episode. One of my more famous clip shows from The Simpsons is called, uh, I think it's from season four. So it's come to this, The Simpsons Clip Show. And mm-hmm. they only did it because the writers were so burned out that they couldn't do another brand new episode. Uh, because according to the showrunners, they were working upwards of 80 hours a week trying to complete this series. So the clip show. <laughs> can can I tell you something? And this is you can this is absolutely true. I have a couple students who had me in previous classes. Uh-huh. I, did a, I did a lecture earlier this week about uh, a certain subject, and the students put their hands up and said, "You remember you did this lecture in our other class?" Brilliant! Yes, yeah. of course. And so now I am clip showing my 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 pedagogy. Hey, I, you know what? It's a thing. It's a thing. So the clip show is kind of dead at this point, in part because they have been kind of parodied to death by other TV shows. Right. Community did a really big mm-hmm. clip show parody that it was kind of like the end of all clip show parodies. Yes. Apparently. Yes. And as well, because everything is streaming, you can mm-hmm. watch your shows uh, or those moments. You don't need to wait for a clip show. You can make your own clip show. You can. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what YouTube is basically, <laughs> <laughs> that's basically right. is, right? Um, but of course, because you mentioned the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. There has been a slight rebirth of the clip show with some reality shows are doing in essence kind mm. of like the most shocking moments of The Bachelor mm-hmm. as a way to fill in content as they make new reality shows because Excellent. there's not the same production apparatus as it were. So the clip show. So you remember now, Paul? Yeah, that was a really good episode. It's always sunny. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, well, the point is, point is, we can do something like that, and we don't have to raise any special guests from the grave. All right, right. I like that. Yeah. yeah, we have, and we have plenty of listeners who have raised questions or have uh, complained or you know nudged gently about things that we didn't talk about in past episodes. So why don't we just go back and fill in some of the blanks? Okay, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So remind me, didn't you get a couple angry texts asking why we never talked about Matt Dillon's character in The Outsiders? Well, okay, not so much angry, but maybe impassioned. That's a wrap. First episode. Oh, shit. We never talked about Matt Dillon's character. God damn it. We had so many notes about Matt Dillon's character. Yes, I know. I know. Because The Outsiders, of course, was the middle of three S.E. Hinton film adaptations. Mm -hmm. Right? First, there was Tax in 1982. And then after The Outsiders, uh, Coppola thought it was so fabulous. He did Rumblefish in 1983. Mm -hmm. Um, They filmed all of them in Tulsa. Right. Dylan starred in all three of them uh, because he just had the right vibe. Then he capitalized on all of that later by doing my personal favorite Matt Dillon film, The Flamingo Kid in 1984. In The Outsiders, one of the things we talked about was about how the boys form kind of this ad hoc family. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Pony Boy and Johnny form a couple when they go out to the church. Um, but Dallas, which is Dylan's character, he's never really part of a family. 
Right. Um, he lives over the bar with Tom Waits's character. Tom Waits's character is not really a parent, but somehow Dallas knows all the things. Like he knows how to get out of town on a train. He knows mm -hmm. he has a gun, right? Yeah. Um, he's also kind of the most sort of sexually uh, active character in some ways like he or like he, most outwardly sexually character right because he's yeah, the one that doesn't he's the mean. one who, yeah he hits on cherry and it's mm -hmm. you know he's he's sort of sexually threatening to her one of the things we talked about a lot was the opening scene where he and um dallas and pony boy and johnny are walking around tulsa mm -hmm. basically like looking for illegal shit to do yeah. Right. <laughs> They're yeah. basically trying to get in trouble. Right. And then all they find are these like little kids who are like 10 and 11 who are playing cards in their their plot of land. Mm -hmm. And then Dallas picks up the cards and like throws them all down and says, do 52 pickup. And, and one of the things that I was particularly excited about when I was watching this was that this was very much the uh, initial scene of uh, Slacker by Richard Linklater. This is a major film about Austin, Texas. Mm hmm. But the point about Matt Dillon's character is that he is super, super attached to Johnny, mm -hmm. um, which is why he really totally goes off the deep end when Johnny dies. Yeah. Um, and this is in both the book and the film. He basically commits suicide by cop. He robs the grocery store and then he walks outside with his gun. Um, and for some reason, that just was something that we missed when we were just talking about it. I don't, I don't understand why. Um, I guess if you're into hmm. really super dark and broody and damaged, he's the one for you. I guess maybe I'm biased because that wasn't my vibe when I was watching this. <laughs> it was, it was a, it was a different time, and I had all this stuff I wanted to say about Tulsa just as a place, like the history of Tulsa a little mm. bit. Um, I think the big thing, of course, of Tulsa is the 19, 1921 uh, Tulsa Race Massacre. Absolutely, uh, which Wood. everybody knows about now because of Watchmen. Yes. Uh, so in the Greenwood District, which was called Black Wall Street, was a mm -hmm. very one of the, the <clears throat> most uh, successful black neighborhoods in the United States in the 1920s. Like a lot of race massacres that that occurred uh there's rumors uh an accusation i think it was a, a black shoe shiner who's accused of assaulting a a sarah page who was a i think a white elevator operator in tulsa mm -hmm. um and basically you have uh groups and groups of groups of white people march on the greenwood district uh in essence just raise it to the ground um, mm -hmm. um, there, there are instances where they're basically calling in the National Guard. Uh, they're dropping incendiary bombs on Black Wall Street. And it's something that's kind of basically scrubbed out of the history of, mm -hmm. uh, of, of Tulsa and American history for, for, for many, many years. For a really long time, although Ida B. Wells wrote all about the Tulsa massacre. Right for years even tulsa itself as a city would not acknowledge this had happened and would really mm -hmm. downplay it in its official history uh, i think the latest estimates i think they originally said it was something like only 13 people had died but the more recent estimates range at much 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 higher and it's it's interesting because there's no people of color in the outsiders right this is a mm -hmm. white story 
this is there's no there's even no suggestion really of non-whiteness existing in this southwestern city mm-hmm. um which was a part of a state that was indian territory oklahoma's history itself is of kind of the worst symbolic and literal uh, governmental policies toward uh, Native Americans, right? Just the dumping mm-hmm. ground, in essence, for um, so many tribes. And then, of course, it's later, you know, opened up to white settlement. I work on um, Laura Ingalls Wilder mm-hmm. and her literature. And um, her family was chased out of Oklahoma because mm-hmm. uh, her dad thought that he could settle on native lands and then they said oh you have to leave so i mean oklahoma has always been super contested territory it kind of it doesn't become that in the outsiders in weird ways like also in in the the book the outsiders which i read Mm -hmm. uh there's a whole lot of stuff about um the rodeo right Mm -hmm. and about how a lot of uh native americans are rodeo stars that doesn't end up anywhere in the movie no and it, it it's funny because like i feel like we should have talked about it more because of course like i had, I had also just taught oklahoma the, the musical and there's this it, it to me it continues this mythology of oklahoma as a white space and absolutely 100 you know and then of course in watchmen what's interesting is one of the opening scenes mm-hmm. in the very first episode is an all-black production of oklahoma mm-hmm. um and uh, the ending of the first episode features um, Don Johnson's character being being hung and they're singing poor Judd is dead. So there's mm-hmm. this reclaiming of Oklahoma mm-hmm. through white texts in, um, in Watchmen. It's yes. really, really interesting. Yes. Well, celebration of Watchmen. Yes. And we forgot all of that. So what are we gonna do? Maybe we'll bring it back in a clip show later. Maybe. really fucked up didn't we yeah we did the other thing we didn't have that first time around we didn't have our alan rickman award no we didn't didn't. no that was like the genius moment from our second show Mm -hmm. and so we're retroactively awarding the alan rickman award (laughs) absolutely to tom waits who, (laughs) who is in the film for i believe 10 seconds and but they are such an impactful 10 seconds they are they are I think he has one line and it's like it's like judy dench when she won the oscar for shakespeare in love and was only on screen for like <laughs> a single frame of the film i will not do my tom waits impression again so sigh alan rickman yeah hey that reminds me do you remember mm-hmm. your long ass summary of die hard <laughs> i do and you had to speed it up at the end. We never got back to talking about Bruce Willis's bloody feet. Oh my God. I spent so much time at the beginning talking about the plane and then I never talked about the bloody feet. No. Hey, you never brought the feet up again. Ah, oh, shit. You're right. <laughs> God damn it. I didn't. Ah. <sighs> <sighs> The, the blood and the glass and the it just it, it totally slipped my mind 
which is understandable. I mean, it's it's pretty visceral. You know, seeing. His well, I mean, you shouldn't. It shouldn't slip my mind because it's visceral. But yeah. Hmm. Didn't you say it was a big plot point in the book? It is a big plot point in the book, uh, which I read for Die Hard, and that was my sacrifice for the Die Hard episode, as, mm -hmm. as I think yes, our loyal as listeners you have mentioned recall. many, many a time. Yes. Not, not that I bring it up out of any sort of spite, Amy, but that's fine. You know, that's what I do, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it's a big point because he's on a like it's a flashback to a, a, a time where he's traveling on a plane and he's mm -hmm. he had been a World War II fighter pilot and he's mm -hmm. talking to a German, and the German businessman says, <clears throat> "If you take off your shoes, mm -hmm. right." You, like somehow your chakra or something will like leave through your feet and you'll be able to rest no matter where you go. Yes. And, um, and he takes his shoes off. And if you, you think about in Die Hard, there's a scene where he's up in the- The, the really nice executive offices with like the super you. plush bathrooms. Yes. yes. And he takes his shoes off and it's not really explained. And I-, I But think he squishes his toes in, in, in the carpet, like, so yeah. this is a very 80s thing, right? The the giant mm -hmm. plush carpet that mm -hmm. really we all know now is super gross and you can't ever clean it. And, and he's and he's crunching his toes in it and then suddenly all hell breaks loose and then he's barefoot. The the mark of his sacrifice is that he's running around barefoot and like runs through glass and yeah. like shreds his feet. Yeah, I agree. We didn't talk about it. We no. suck. We do. I wonder if there's a connection between because we also talked about how Rambo we, we compared mm -hmm. Die Hard with Rambo and yeah we did this idea of Rambo adopting native kind of iconography mm -hmm. could we argue that Jean McClane in Ram by not wearing shoes is now like somehow more in touch with his like environment even though the environment's a skyscraper mm -hmm. that's a really good point sacrificial absolutely mm -hmm. and it's christmas so <laughs> you know but that's an easter thing easter christmas yeah, rabbits the, ble the bleeding reindeer. all happens on easter well okay yeah okay that's a <laughs> sure that's you know the fox building plaza in die hard is a great example of cocaine decor Oh, it really is. I, I love and I love their Twitter feed. Um, you know, we actually, honestly, we really haven't talked that much about drugs. Uh, for an 80s podcast, that's what we are. Yes, for an yes. 80s podcast. It's kind of <laughs> unusual that we haven't talked about drugs that much. No, that's not just a, a die. A, that's not just a thing in Die Hard. I mean, drugs yeah. are all over Roadhouse. I knew you were going to bring up Roadhouse because that is your favorite episode. So we're just gonna have to go out of order now and talk about Roadhouse, aren't we? Damn straight we are. Okay. <laughs> and so that brings me to Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler's feud, which culminated in this empty uh, arena match in Memphis. Mm -hmm. Amy, are, are you still there? Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. I'm here. Yes, all this is totally going in the episode. Yep. Mm-hmm. 100% promise. Okay. Oh. Huh. All yep. right. Fascinating. So, okay. Well, uh, remember you got showed distracted. You never said a bit about Dalton's car being his horse. 
Oh God. Yes. That was, I was so into that. The idea that like, you know, there are all these like random pull-ups to Mm -hmm. the roadhouse and to different, different places. And his car is, 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 is white. And that he also has the car that like he hides when he's in New York and he pulls it out when he's getting ready to go down to, to the double deuce. His car actually ends up being kind of his sidekick. And, and really, if we're going to talk about Roadhouse as a Western, you know, he doesn't have a horse, but he has a car. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like this other character. And his car that he gives away to the homeless man, right? Mm-hmm. You can almost see like that's not his authentic horse. It's not his trusty mm-hmm. horse. It's, mm-hmm. it's a status symbol. Uh, mm-hmm. like, and you think of this might be off, off the rails here, but the sort of like the, uh, the quasi effeminate cowboy of the 1930s films, like the, the singing cowboy, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And like he's like the showman cowboy. Mm-hmm. And now he's the authentic cowboy uh, when he has the more rusty horse, mm-hmm. so to speak. Every time he pulls up in front of the, the plate, like it, he's not pulling into a real parking space. No. Right? The other thing that this makes me think about is this great 80s movie that uh, I kind of wanted to be my grad reading for this episode, mm-hmm. which is Drugstore Cowboy um, from Ooh. 1989, mm-hmm. uh, which has in it our former star Matt Dillon mm-hmm. from The Outsiders. Also Kelly Lynch, who I kind of, you know, threw some shade on in this episode, saying that she was very wooden. But yes, you did. Mm-hmm. She wasn't given a lot of material to work with, but in Drugstore no. Cowboy, she mm-hmm. is brilliant. She is the Alan Rickman Award for Drugstore Cowboy. Um, this is Gus Van Sant's second film. Gus Van Sant originally wanted Tom Waits to play no. the Matt Dillon lead. Yes, he did. Really? Um, so there's this great uh, interview with Van Sant uh, mm-hmm. where he says, he says, when I was first trying to get things going, I somehow got in touch with Tom Waits. Tom Waits was more the type of guy who resembled the character. Matt Dillon was a younger version. Tom could gripe about the younger kids today, whereas Matt was still a kid. Mm-hmm. Tom Waits wanted to do it. I'd given him a script. Then when I went to the company that was financing it, and I mentioned Tom Waits, they had him in another film. That was one thing. But I think they had made The Kiss of the Spider Woman with William Hurt, and they'd won an Oscar attention. So they were aiming really high, like Jack Nicholson. I think Sean Penn was in there, Matthew Modine, those three. I don't know what happened with Sean. But Nicholson said no. Matthew Modine's agent said no. Somewhere along the line, Matt Dillon was suggested by agents. It sort of became agents arguing and not even about myself. Tom was just in a different movie in the same company, which is kind of sad. As a young filmmaker, I was playing this game of whatever you guys say, which is not very comforting. But Matt Dillon ends up playing this role that was originally kind of envisioned, which, which is really interesting given our, you know, our past right. history with uh, The Outsiders, right? Where Tom mm-hmm. Waits is the uncle to Matt Dillon's character. The other thing we didn't talk about uh, was uh, Tai Chi and martial mm-hmm. arts, Asian martial arts. I feel like this is something very similar to what's going on in the early 1900s after Americans become very, very nervous about the Japanese after they beat Russia in Mm -hmm. the Russo-Japanese War of 1904. Um, There's this like anxiety about like Asians and Japanese being super militaristic and super strong 
and that's being countered by this massive sort of effeminization of Japanese culture. Um, you think of Madame Butterfly, right? Right. Uh, Madame Butterfly becomes a huge hit right around the same time. I, it's it's a big cultural backlash. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like Dalton is really strange because he's like doing, he's very masculine and like, like super oiled and super sexy, but mm-hmm. he's doing Tai Chi. So it's like, where does he fall? And, and where is Asianness in all this? Because Asianness is so, so vexed in the eighties. Mm-hmm. It goes to a point we, we raised with Die Hard, right? Sort of the anti-Asian, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, stereotypes and portrayals, mm-hmm. um, the sort of this economic anxiety wait none none of the wrestling stuff ended up in the final cut did it wait give me give me my heart button where is it where is it where is it we didn't talk about the fact that patsy swayze patrick swayze's mom was the choreographer for the dance sequences for urban cowboy shit we did not we no we talked about it so many times because we have such a Swayze through line mm-hmm. in everything we're talking about. I mean, basically the show exists because we just wanted to talk about Patrick Swayze in every possible way. Uh, so. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, mm-hmm. eventually. We're, we're working our way to dirty dancing. but Yeah. But it's interesting because there's also a connection because she got her start in Houston and she mm-hmm. was a worked for I think a, uh, worked for several Houston-based dance companies and then tr- transitioned into choreography, mm-hmm. um, and she was pretty active until I think I think her last film was Hope Floats. So there's a lot of Texas films that she that she works mm. on. I think it's mm-hmm. pretty interesting. Um, we didn't talk a lot about Gillies with urban no Kaba. not so much about gillies as like this massive cultural institution mm-hmm. which I, I i think is it's still very hard for me to process how this one single club in pasadena texas becomes mm-hmm. you know kind of nationally known um, mm-hmm. because of well gilly and the reputation the the bar has right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um also, Gillies went up in flames under mysterious circumstances. Uh, yep. Like I feel like that's the the metaphor for the 1980s in some capacity. <laughs> it has this this apex, sketchiness, sketchiness, <laughs> possibly drugs. We don't possibly know. Possibly drugs. Possibly drugs. But one thing we we did also didn't talk about was mm-hmm. the punching machine. Well, uh, so the punching machine is kind of the secondary thing to the the mechanical bull right mm-hmm. mechanical bull is the thing that everybody focuses on um but even before sissy tries to ride the bull she tries to participate in the punching machine which is how hard can you hit something mm-hmm. and that it's basically just her inserting herself into what was constructed as holy masculine territory right sure that's another metaphor mm-hmm. for everything where she tries to become a part of this thing that bud is into mm-hmm. right but she can't really be it because it's all about being a boy right and she bangs up her hand pretty bad right yes right. yes so there's like a there's also there's like a physical not barrier but physical punishment so to speak for her trying to enter the male space right which is also the thing that eventually bud ends up having a physical 
you know, he breaks his arm mm -hmm. uh, on the bull, right? right? And it goes to that, like the danger of like, it's not, it's, you're not actually riding a bull. You're not actually punching somebody <laughs> in the face. It's performative, but it's also dangerous. Right. right? So, and, and yeah, and I, those things have kind of gone by the wayside because they are a sort of uh, liability issue. Yeah, because people will just like smash open their hands. Like, well, I'm pretty sure there wasn't any sort of concern about liability in Gillies in the 80s. I mean, this is this is way <laughs> before the lawyers have taken control, right? That that's right. another thing that's so interesting, right? This and Roadhouse, like, mm -hmm. all all we thought about was like, what is the insurance? And, and insurance became kind of a joke in Roadhouse, but sure. in you know, in '82, in '80, in, in Gillies, you know, nobody's thinking about this. Well, you know, and you mentioned cars earlier, and I remember when we were watching Urban Cowboy, there are so many shots of the parking lot mm -hmm. of Gillies mm -hmm. that make no sense whatsoever. Like there's- Oh, it's there's, a terrible parking lot. No, there's no lines. And like, no. there's, I, I can imagine the amount, the number of fist fights that would have broken out for people at two o'clock in the morning trying to get their horrible. car. Yeah, terrible, terrible. <laughs> totally um, unrealistic. Yes. We've also been giving out a new award recently, mm -hmm. uh, and retroactively, Absolutely. we're going to award the Linda Evans Award for Excellence in Camp. Yes. To the star of Urban Cowboy, John Travolta. Totally. Now, this may be a controversial award, um, <laughs> but if you watch Urban Cowboy, and I, I don't want to despair. I, I, edge. I just, despair, despair edge. Despair edge. <laughs> Drugs are bad. Um, I don't want to disparage Mr. Travolta's performance here per se, because I think he's genuinely trying, right, mm -hmm. as, as an actor. But it's it just, he can't not veer into camp territory. Well, like, he's already done Saturday Night Fever. Mm -hmm. And so everything that he does after that is a reflection on and quote of Saturday Night Fever. Right. At this point. Yeah. Uh, and it's just like, the moments where he's trying to be a hard character, mm -hmm. it's eh, it's the the baggage of previous personas coming bubbling up, right? One hundred percent. So there's our, our Linda Evans Award for Excellence in Camp to John Travolta. Um, bravo, sir! Bravo. Yes. Yes. funny thing we haven't talked about are two tv episodes just yet because we're talking about clip shows good point good point and, and the love boat was one of the most egregious ones that we left out something i mean immediately after we published our love boat episode we got mm -hmm. feedback why didn't you talk about doc well because he was so <laughs> creepy <laughs> yeah we really he really bothered us, right? Um, but apparently he was the one character so many of our listeners wanted us to talk about. So uh, here, we, here we go. Here we go. So the episode where Linda Evans was being so amazing was also a mm -hmm. huge episode for Doc. Yes. Because he was getting ready to marry this really young, nubile woman. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that that to me, like really crystallized the creepiness that was Doc. Um, it, he became kind of this weirdly, you know, uh, campy character on some mm -hmm. level that he had so many ex-wives and he was so attractive apparently to all these people who came on board ship. But, you know, watching that as us in 2021 it was so, so horrible, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And, and the, the episodes that I watched, I, I didn't understand I didn't understand. I, on one, I just didn't understand who his character was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. like, 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 is he supposed to be a doctor, a la, you know, uh, Bones from Star Trek? That, that, so it's not only that he's trying to getting married to this woman, but he's also trying to figure out whether she's pregnant. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which, I again, like this leads to the question: like, what what level of doctor is he? Like, how? <laughs> You know, it's just like a really general, general, general practitioner <laughs> or like, but it's not, but I remember us watching it and we somehow had, had missed the start of his plot line. And, and we were both like at some point saying, why is he doing this exactly? This is very confusing. And I, I, I'm struggling to like finish up our thoughts on Doc. So like the I'm, I'm trying to go on a, like a relatively high note here. But like, but okay. So I, I think a point maybe to say about the love boat is it, it is it is fantasy, right? Mm -hmm. and, and part of our one of our points we made about the love boat it was it sold fantasy to cruise uh patrons mm -hmm. in real life right and so it's selling fantasy to the characters on the mm -hmm. show mm -hmm. but we usually i think we're framing that as fantasy for the guest stars there's also yes. I think, a, a fantasy for the crew members too like this fantasy mm -hmm. of they're living this life that's not attainable working mm -hmm. on a ship and of course a lecherous gross 40 something doctor <laughs> going to in the fantasy world the love boat be attractive to uh, attractive younger women and mm -hmm. maybe maybe that's the the entire fantasy of the love boat sigh so you know actually paul i yeah. have been calling our last three episodes the annotated 80s bar crawl you have. <laughs> yeah, have, which is pretty clever. Mm -hmm. But I think actually the, the bar crawl started back on the love boat with our bartender, Isaac, didn't it? It did. We never really did the, but we didn't really get to the drunk. <laughs> well, the cheers episode was a good, a classic drunk annotated 80s. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yes. And we forgot shit, of course. We did. shit paul you know what the thing that i really wanted to talk about was all of diane's outfits where she's wearing white so many amazing ones and like the one that i really 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 love is mm -hmm. when she's wearing this halston pantsuit when she invites sumner to talk with her and sam 
But then also like when Sam ends up proposing to her on the boat, she's wearing all white. There's so much late or it's not really late 70s anymore, but it's early 80s, Halston-y kind of loungewear mm-hmm. fashion. Positioned in opposition again to Carla, right? Every time. Yeah, she's yeah. wearing white. She's very pure. What was really interesting is Shelley Long and Rhea Perlman mm-hmm. were both pregnant at the same time right right but they played Carlman's pregnancy for a plot point and they hid Shelley Long's pregnancy yeah which is all also about a certain racing and classing of Italian Americans mm-hmm. and and that really really bothered me well it, speaking as an Italian American it, it bothered me too and we talked about this a little bit on the on the episode as well, but we didn't really delve into it. But this this idea of Carla is both an outsider and or she means yes. an insider in Cheers, but also an outsider in terms yes. of sexual mores, in terms of class, in terms of even I would say she's the she's clearly the most ethnic of mm-hmm. of oh, any character, sure. and she's not like she seems as well. I would say in terms of fashion, and you can probably speak to this better than I can. But she's also out of style more than any other. Oh, completely. I mean, she wears fanny packs. That's also that anti-Southern European kind of embedded racism that, Mm -hmm. you know, is so prevalent, right, in in, um, in the history of immigration, right? And so she's, Mm -hmm. her pregnancies are marked as a sign of some sort of moral failing, right, that she's... Well, and she keeps, you know... Uh, having relationships with men who are not available to her and who do not support her, mm. right? Which is not the ideal. I mean, Diane is going after somebody who is going to be her, you know, intellectual. I mean, if maybe not intellectual equal, like at least acknowledge her as an intellectual superior, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The bar itself is a really interesting space, right? Right. And I actually, after the episode aired, uh, mm-hmm. my cousin Joe sent me a message and he had a really great observation that mm-hmm. because of where the bar is, the bar is in essence underground. Mm-hmm. And in essence, none of the characters can actually escape the bar. They kind of, Oh yeah. It's right. kind of, kind of purgatory in, mm-hmm. in essence. Like Diane can escape. Well, Norm tries to because he washes dishes upstairs. Right. Uh, Sam can sort of, I mean, mm-hmm. like they, they have the capacity to like leave the bar temporarily, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they can't ever. So they're in this kind of like space. They're stuck between the lowest possible rung of society and mm-hmm. going upstairs to the high class ish kind of restaurant upstairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking actually like Gorky's lower depths. <laughs> <laughs> These characters kind of in this station, yeah. they can kind of leave and they can kind of are a bit of failures, mm-hmm. all of them. Oh, for sure. Well, remember Nazma. also when Norm, like, you know, they, 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 they mock him for being a dishwasher. Which is very Russian theater. Mm-hmm. Think of it, you know, mm-hmm. I, I thought it was a really great observation. And just like, just to think about the physical space of where Cheers Absolutely. is, but less yeah. naturalism as it were. You know, one of the things we didn't talk about is laugh tracks. We did not talk about laugh tracks. <laughs> we did not. Laugh tracks were really weird. They were. 
And Cheers did not use laugh tracks, but most shows that we grew up watching, most sitcoms did use laugh tracks. Well, but Cheers had a live studio audience, right? They Which did. laughed. Which laughed at the jokes, right? Apparently. They made, they made a big point of saying so at the beginning mm -hmm. of the episode. They still exist, but I don't know. Like, I think they've fallen out of favor, but they haven't. Based on what most film historians and television historians would say, it's the, the brainchild of this guy named Charlie Douglas, who was an okay. engineer, producer for CBS in the early uh, 1950s. Now, he did not invent the idea of laugh tracks, but he was the first to use them in TV. Mm -hmm. um, the Bing Crosby had a radio show in the 1940s, and his producers would record audiences laughing so they could not have to do live shows. So they could play the laugh track of an old audience uh, just to build in the jokes. Douglas was getting really upset at when he was cutting episodes and then recording episodes, the audiences were not laughing at the exact time the writers <laughs> wanted them to laugh. And if you, and this, honestly, if you've done any comedy, right, right, one of the hard things is like building in the laugh breaks or when someone laughs, oh, and you're, 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 it throws off your timing. And so what he did was he started recording. That's why Hannah Gatsby is such a genius. Absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. So he started recording uh, audiences laughing, and then he would play that at certain moments. So that would take out the kind of X factor of mm -hmm. a live audience. Mm -hmm. um, but also what it did was because television was new, right? The thinking was that you're creating a kind of community. Mm -hmm. So people understand when to laugh. They feel they can be encouraged to laugh at the right. jokes being presented to you. Mm -hmm. um, of course, there's there's a backlash against the the laugh track because a lot of producers, a lot of directors think it's just like, you know, kind of like this Frankfurt school, you're kind of propagandizing the audience, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. which I kind of understand right? because mm -hmm. I, I, I find as a viewer, when I see a, hear a laugh track, I'm not inclined to laugh. No, of course not. Um, I'd rather try laugh organically at what I, what I see and not, but it's hard to remember what it was like in like 1973, 1974, mm -hmm. hearing a laugh track. Right. Yeah. But it was, it was in everything, right. It was in mm -hmm. like anything with comedy had a laugh track, even yeah. though, even though it was a show like the love boat where there was no semblance of an audience, it's still used. And things like a lot of CBS sitcoms will use laugh tracks. Really? Uh, yeah. A lot of like the Big Bang Theory or... Um, oh, well, the Big Bang Theory sucks. Well, well yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's also fascinating. And you can find a lot of these clips on YouTube um, that you can find laugh tracks removed from sitcoms. Mm -hmm. uh, and you see how bizarre the pacing of these shows is because mm -hmm. the, the actors hit the cue or like have those pauses for the laugh tracks. Mm -hmm. um, so you can think, find things like friends or the big bang theory devoid of laugh tracks. And it's, it's like bizarre. It's bizarre. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Laugh tracks. All right. So Paul, we had a clip show. We did have a clip show. Did we yeah. learn to grow during our clip show? <laughs> I mean, no, I don't think we have. <laughs> I think we're supposed to. No, 
No. Do you think we should give our audience anything to kind of think about or like other grad readings maybe? So my grad reading may have been Drugstore Cowboy, mm -hmm. really, because that is a film that sort of grew out of all of the trends that we have been discussing already. But what do you have, Paul, for our grad reading? I have uh, episode, or excuse me, episode seven from season 13 of The Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> the gang does a clip show. <laughs> Which we have already referenced. We have, Thank but, you. I didn't but I didn't really get to talk about it. I really love this clip show. I, I'm not a fan of clip shows uh, for a lot of reasons, but this is like a philosophical clip show in, <laughs> in that, in all seriousness, uh, so the gang is sitting around kind of reminiscing about past events and they start with regular clips, but then the clips are getting filtered through the characters, fractured memories of the mm -hmm. events. And so characters like have more hair than they did or have longer <laughs> legs. Um, midway through the episode, all the characters start remembering that they're on the, the, uh, the episode of Seinfeld called The Bet. Uh, so like two characters are Jerry for no apparent reason. Characters start morphing into the memories of other characters and becomes this like fractured sense. Like it's like Inception meets Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And it's it's pretty fantastic. So that's my grad reading for you in this clip show. Next up, we are planning on doing something about baseball. We are. We are going to do uh, 1989's Major League, uh, which features the Cleveland Indians, who will soon not be the Cleveland Indians, and I think we all can agree that's a good thing. And set in the the home the home station, the hometown, whatever of of the annotated 80s, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So, all right. Well, but and and we are getting ready to, to launch into our our second series. So this is our our midterm uh, episode. So we've got seven more coming up. So let us know if there's something that you are interested in us covering in Absolutely. our next seven. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, thank you very much in advance to Eleanor Toyama, who will be producing and. Um, filling in all of the audio for this episode and thank you to everyone who's listened so far who keeps us going and um makes us feel like we need to, to continue to make this well we have listeners and that's the good thing and i'm done that up yes all right thanks all right Bye.